Well, it is good to see you, church. I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, I'm glad that we're getting to continue our uh, study in the book of John. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been doing this for a little while. We have uh, journals with the book of John in there, places you can write some notes. If you haven't been able to get one of those, uh, I think we may have a few left. Uh, and if we do, come find one of us. We'll make sure that you get one. Uh, but this is something that, that we're wanting to delve deep into. We uh, have been looking at this for a while at a, uh, a, an old disciple, someone who followed Jesus in his younger days, and then as he became an old man, decided that what he would do is make sure that he wrote down what he saw. And the neat thing about the Gospel of John is it's not so much about what Jesus did, and it's not so much about what Jesus said, but it's so much about what Jesus was like, and it's so much about what Jesus meant. And so I love the fact that you have a man who's reflected on this for so long, and this is what he has written down. Before we get into that, though, I want to mention a couple of other things. Um, one is we have a worship seminar today that we're going to do right after church. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you're back over there, we'll be cleaning those uh, chairs out pretty quick right after worship, uh, setting up some tables. And we want to talk about what worship is. We want to talk about what we're trying to do. So those folks that, are, that have served so well up there doing the slides and doing the sound and doing the lighting and doing the stream and then the praise team and the folks that help lead us in worship there uh, will be here. But if you're interested in being a part of any of those, stay. Come stay. We're going to talk about uh, uh, what we're trying to accomplish here in worship and uh, what the Lord has placed in our hands and how we can be faithful with that. We've got plenty of food and uh, would love for you to stay and be a part of that. In addition to that, we want to mention uh, our women's retreat and our men's retreats are coming up. There are tables out there for both of them. We would love for you to be a part of both of those. Well, not both of those. You probably can't go to both. <laughs> Let's say one of the other of those. So you can go to one of the other of those. Uh, you don't need to be going to both of those. But uh, we hope that uh, you would be willing to go to a retreat here. That's an opportunity for us to really get to know each other, uh, to spend some time in the Word together, some time in worship and, uh, and fellowship, and so we're, we're excited to do that. Uh, before we do get into the lesson and the reading for today, uh, I would like to uh, say a prayer. This is a tradition of this church, is we begin uh, with a prayer for another congregation here in this town. We believe that uh, the kingdom of God is a mighty and large thing, uh, and it extends beyond these walls, and it goes uh, beyond this city, but uh, in particular, we want to pray uh, for God to move powerfully and for his Holy Spirit to be a part of not only what we do, but some other churches in this area too. And so we always bring one up and pray. And just a few weeks ago, I got to meet uh, Pastor Maurice Washington, uh, who is with the Barnett Chapel. And uh, uh, would love to stop and pray for them before we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you that uh, we get to call ourselves yours. Uh, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the way that you've loved us at great price. Uh, great sacrifice that we are yours. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that you would uh, bless us, make us your people, but not only that, but that this whole city would become a place where your name is lifted up and glorified. That people who wear your name would be those who love and those who serve and those who point towards a cross and an empty tomb. And in particular, Lord, we ask that you bless Barnett Chapel this morning and uh, Pastor Maurice Washington. Lord, uh, if if he is up speaking, give him the words that you would have him say. Give him the gift of preaching. Take the words uh, that are coming out of his heart that I know he so desperately wants to share with other people and make them uh, pierce the souls of those that are in his congregation. Uh, keep them safe. Guard their hearts from the evil one and instead 
uh, give them boldness to preach the gospel in this town. And Lord, we ask that you would bless all of us as we try and do the same thing. Give us unity like you have with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that that would be uh, something that people see in us and they will know that we're your children by the way that we love each other. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So uh, we are moving into, we're still uh, in John, and we talked last week about um, Nicodemus and uh, the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And depending on how you look at that, that can look like good news or bad news. One of the things that happened was you had a very religious and what would be considered righteous man come to Jesus, and Jesus goes, here's the deal, you're going to have to be reborn. You kind of got to start over. We're going to have to start you over and have you be reborn. And you look at that and you go, wow, Nicodemus was somebody who was that faithful and was a leader in that way. That's bad news, but it's not bad news. It's really good news. Because being reborn is something that the Lord gives to us. And it's something that we get for free. And so we get to talk today in John 3.16 about what that means. So if I can, I'm going to ask Casey to come up and read our scripture from today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thank you, Casey. Appreciate that. Thank you for reading that. So, uh, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible... Uh, even in the world, right? I mean, how many of y'all, as soon as he started with, for God so loved in your head, you were finishing it, right? You know that. This is one that's well known inside uh, the, the church and believers and even outside. As a matter of fact, uh, there were some people who went viral before viral was a thing with that. Like, I don't know if you're familiar. Do you know who Roland Stewart is? Do any of y'all know who Roland Stewart, just off your hand? You're, you're going to recognize him, especially if you're a little older. That's him. You know Roland Stewart? It's the guy with the rainbow afro who used to be in all of the sporting events that you would see on TV. If you were watching an NFL game, you would see this guy holding up a sign that said John 3, 16. Uh, he went, like I said, viral before viral was really a thing. Uh, people noticed him because he was on all of these events and on TV everywhere. Roland would show up, and he had that up there so that people were immediately looking at that. And I think Roland's original goal was the idea of going, if I put this up there, maybe people will look at it. And maybe if they look at it, something will happen. And, and then there was, a, after Roland, there was somebody that you know a little bit better, and that's this guy. That's Tim Tebow, right? You know who Tim Tebow is? He was a, a, a famous college athlete and not quite as famous a pro athlete. Uh, but was a famous college athlete. One of the things that, that Tim Tebow did was he would put scriptures under his eye black. And one of the things that he did was he started out in Philippians and then he changed it to John 3.16 uh, when he went into a national championship game in 2009. And one of the things that happened from that is he was told after he changed that and then went on and played in the national championship game and he was on TV that there were 94 million people 
during that game who Googled John 3.16. 94 million people. It's funny, Tebow's first reaction to that was to go, I can't believe there's 94 million people who don't know what John 3.16 is. <laughs> right? But that was one of the things, is he put that on there and so all of these people Googled it. So it's this famous scripture. And I'll tell you, uh, as a minister and as a preacher, my fellow preacher will know this, you look at this and you go, John 3.16, and you go, well, that's an easy one to preach. And you go, it's, it's, it's not always that easy to preach. One of the things that happens is the fact that immediately we go to the rote memory of what's going on, that sometimes it can lose its memory. It can lose its meaning. And so with this, one of the things that I'll just tell you that I struggled with this week is to go, how do I take this? this scripture, and I make this new, and I make this exciting, and I make you look at this in a new way, and you're astounded, and you're amazed, and you go, this is great, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that with these words, but I don't think we need to do that, because I think there's more to the idea of just putting John 3.16 up there, and there's more to us just being able to quote it, that actually, if we were to look at this, and we were to believe it, and see the words that are in there, it should change us. More than us just being able to say it, and more than us just being able to quote it, it should change who we are. Satan can quote Scripture. He does with Jesus. That was part of the temptation, is that he can quote Scripture. We're required, we're asked, we're allowed, we're gifted to be able to do more than that. We get to be changed by words that are true. And so when you start looking at this, when you start realizing there's more than us just being able to go, John 3, 16, and it's more than us just being able to quote it, it should change who we are. So I tell you what, how about if I just remind you of some things that you may already know are true? We meditate on those. We see what happens. Timothy Keller said that some scriptures have inside of them a test and a discipline. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. The idea of the test is to go, here's the test. Can you believe this? And more than just can you believe this, can you trust it? Can you let this be something that changes you? Can you let it give you peace? Can you let it be the thing that gives you guidance in your life? Can you give yourself to this? There's the test in that scripture. And even more than the test is the discipline. There's a discipline with this. It's about can you make this part of your everyday life? Can this be the thing that you always go back to? Is it the thing that you're able to wake up to and go, this is what defines me, and this makes me who I am? Because it's so easy to forget the words that are in this scripture. It's so easy to forget who we really are and who God really is from this. Can we let this be our discipline? Because when we really know it and when we really believe it, we should be different. But we have a hard time always living in things even that we know are true. It's very difficult for us. That's why sometimes I have conversations with you that I, I love you dearly and I struggle with this too. There's people that come up and go, and I believe and I'm a believer, but I wonder if I've done enough. I wonder if I'm good enough. And what that is is us taking this scripture and going, I just don't know that I can honestly trust this all the time because I've messed up and we look at ourselves and we start comparing ourselves. And what you see is that it's such a discipline to not only quote this and to point to it, but to actually believe it in such a way that it changes us. There's more to it than just quoting John 3.16. If there's one thing that I hope we'll be able to get out of it, it's the first few words. And that's what we're going to focus on a lot today. And that's that, for God so loved. And here's what that really means. is If you were to translate that, really what it means is God loved thusly. 
In other words, this is the way he did it. He loved it in this way, and it's a unique way. And that's one of the things that we have to understand with this. It's a singular way that God loves. But I think that is an important place to start. For God so loved that he gave. We're going to focus on that. God loved, so he gave. He loved, so he gave. That's what he did. We all understand the idea of love and that love requires a sacrifice. Every type of love does. You have this sacrifice that you have to give. You give up something for something that you love. And a lot of times we look at that and we start thinking about things that are pretty simple. Like if you're a dad or a mom and you know, hey, I, I've got to give up my golf game so that I can be there for my kid's birthday party. You know that that's something you need to sacrifice for something you love. You take something you don't love as much and you sacrifice that for something that you do love. And we look at that and we go that that's pretty easy. But when, when it starts ramping up as to what you love more, the things of value, the more and more valuable it is that you have to give up. I'll tell you a, a lesson I learned with this a long time when I was just a young man. So uh, I was at ACU and I was a junior and I met this girl. And she, by the way, this is my wife, so I'm not going to get in trouble with this. This is eventually going to be my wife. So uh, I met this girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and fell in love with her. And we dated for a while. And then I remember the time where we decided, so this is the one. And we started talking about marriage. And we said, this is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And thankfully, she was nuts enough to think the same thing about me. Right? And I remember as we became seniors and we're getting ready to graduate. And so it's early spring semester of my senior year. So we've just got a few months left. And I started working it out in my brain. And I started going, okay, so let me see if I can get how this is going to work. So we're going to graduate in May. And then after that, I got to find a job. And then once I find a job, I got to start saving some money so that I can buy a ring. And then after I save some money and then I buy that ring and then I ask her to marry me, hopefully she says yes. And then what happens is that starts six months of an engagement time, and then we'll be married. Can't do it. Can't wait. I remember that was the thing sitting there going, I can't wait that long. There's no way. I'm not going to make it. I need to marry her before that. I'm ready for us to start our life together. And so there wasn't any way that I was going to be willing to do that. So I started looking at the idea of going, okay, what do I have of value? Is there anything that I have of value that maybe I could sacrifice and I wasn't thinking about it this way, but I was thinking about, how do I get a ring? How do I get the ring on that girl's finger before she changes her mind? Right? And that's the thing that I started looking at. So I didn't have much. I was a college kid living in Abilene. There was one thing that I had. I had this really nice pickup truck. And I mean, it was nice. I bought it from this guy at church. And it was, it was really nice. It was a 1985 GMC Sierra Classic. And it was white. And it had the chrome rail on the, on the bed and the, the nice wheels. And it was a nice truck. You could eat off the engine of that truck. I took good care of that truck. It was nice. I kept it clean. It was a nice, you remember it. It was a nice truck. Yeah, there's my brother-in-law. He was there. He remembers. It was a nice truck. It's the only thing I had of value. I didn't have anything else of any value. Nothing else that would get me what I wanted. But I remember looking at that and going, I could sell that. And then I could buy some junker and a ring. And then what I'd do is I'd be able to start my life. And so I, I did. So I sold that, that truck, and I was able to buy the ring, and we were able to get engaged. And I remember at that time thinking, well, this is just the greatest love story in the history of the world. Man gives up his nice pickup for girl. <laughs> I still don't know why they haven't made a movie out of it yet. <laughs> you know, forget the notebook. This is real romance, and this is really what matters. 
But I remember looking at that and going, it's the only thing of value I have. And of course, I was willing to trade it in. And now, after 30 years of being married together, I realize uh, really what sacrifice and love is the fact that she's still married to me after all of this time, right? And that really what we had was we had more than just that to give to each other. We had our whole lives. This idea that you sacrifice something of value for something of greater value makes so much sense. But love has a cost, and the greater the love, the greater the cost will have to be. You know this if you're a parent, right? As soon as you have a child, you know what you start giving up. You give up more than just a girl's night out and your golf game. You give up some valuable things like sleep, right? You give up things like the, the money in your bank account. But more than that, there's, there's even more than that. It's you, you change and you give up your focus being on yourself and the things that you can do. You give up your concern and you shift that around your child. And it's not because they bring anything to this. It's because they're something that, they, you're, something that you desperately love. And so you go, it's easy for me to give up money. And it's easy for me to give up sleep. And it's easy for me to give up these things because I love my child so much. And so when there's a clear value differential, it's easy. Right? As you just go, this is better than this. This is more valuable than this. But then we come to God, and he loves you thusly. That what he did was give up something of tremendous ultimate value for something of tremendous ultimate value. For him to be able to go, I love my creation so much that I'm actually willing to give my son, let a part of me suffer and die so that I can keep something of great value. Something of that sort of love is going to cost a huge price. That's just the way that is. That's what love is. The greater the love, the greater the sacrifice. That's the way it always works. He loved, so he gave. That's what his love is like. It's thusly. Here's another part that I think is really important. You start getting into verse 17, and this is just as important as 16. He didn't come to condemn that's not why he came. Instead, he came to love. He loved, so he gave. He didn't come to condemn the world. This is good news for us because if there's anybody who had the right to condemn, it would be the one who came and lived and lived the perfect life and didn't have sin in any way. And he had the right, he had the power, he had the authority, he had the position to go, man, I can condemn all of you. Because here's the deal. If he did come to condemn, if that's why he came, if ultimately he came here to see that we got what we deserved, we're in trouble. Everybody's in big trouble. Everybody loses. If it was about us getting what we deserve, if it's about condemnation, if it's about making sure that you all get relative to what you've done, we're all in big trouble. And so that's not why he came. That's not the ultimate truth of who Jesus is, and it's not the ultimate truth of who you are. If you want to understand the ultimate truth of who you are, then you need to understand that the Son of God did not leave the throne of glory in perfect harmony and perfect unity with Father and Holy Spirit to come down here because you're so messed up. That's not why he came. He came because you're so loved. For God so loved. It's not for God saw that you were so messed up, he gave. It's because God so loved that he gave. That's why he gave. The ultimate truth is that you are loved in such a way that you don't get what you deserve. We get exceedingly much better than what we deserve. When we don't get that, 
And when we don't understand and when we start thinking that our God is somebody who comes to make sure he does condemn, then con- condemnation starts looking like comparison for us. We get stuck in this place where we start going, well, I didn't deserve punishment, but these other people deserve punishment because that guy's worse than me. But then when I have a bad day, I go, well, man, I'm much worse than he is. And then we get into the spot where we never know if there's any security. And then that takes the gift of love that God gave away from him. He loved, so he gave. And then there's this talk that comes after that about light and dark. And I want you to know that that's a theme that goes throughout John. We talked about this a little bit last week. It started in chapter 1. This idea of light and dark, you're going to see it a lot. If you want to circle something in your journal, start circling that. All of those verses right there that talk about the light and the dark and whether we love the light or whether or not we become people of the dark. Chapter 1, it says that Jesus came. He came in the flesh, and he was the light, and he was the light that gives life. So it started right then, and then it continues to this time. And then he starts talking about people being people of light. We want to be people of light. And this is where this separation comes, because it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his Son. And if you believe this, then you're people of light. And if you don't believe this, then you're people of darkness. This is where the separation starts happening. Being people of light versus people of darkness. But you need to know, light and dark, the way he's talked about here, is not so much about good and bad. And it's not necessarily about obedience, belief, and non-belief that's translated into light and dark. It's more than that. It's more than right and wrong. It's more than just obedience. Because if that's what all it was, Nicodemus would have been a man of light before he even came to Christ. There's a guy that's in the top 99.9% of of those who obey, right? He had his position as a rabbi, not just a rabbi, but he was on the Sanhedrin. This is a guy who obviously loved the Lord and obviously did everything he could. And when he came to Christ, he said, here's the deal. You can't even see the kingdom. You don't have the light. What you need to do is you need to be reborn, and you need to become a person of light. And it's not about obedience. It's not how good you do. Darkness is not just evil people. Darkness is about confusion. Darkness is about deception. It's about those that are stuck in a place where they don't understand who they are. They don't understand who the Father is. They haven't come to see completely and clearly in the light the way that the Father loves them. They don't get that because he loved, he gave. So they can run around stumbling in this place where I'm trying to earn it and I'm trying to do good enough and I'm trying to obey where you'll love me. And they don't see in the light that they are already loved. When you pick light or dark, really what you're doing is you're not picking a way to obey. You're picking who you trust. What story do you believe? Do you believe that he loved and so he gave? Light is the revelation of all things. It is understanding who we are in God's eyes, that we don't have to have shame, that we don't have to have guilt, that we're loved, that that has been taken care of by our Savior. Darkness is the hiding. It's the place where Adam and Eve went after they sinned, and the idea that they tried to go hide from God, it's this, I can't show you who I am because I've messed up, so I go and I hide. I don't want you to know how messed up I am. I'm afraid that your disappointment in me will lead to you not loving me. And so because of that, I go and I hide. That's darkness. What Christ came to do is go, I'm going to shine a light on all of that. I see every bit of who you are. And still he loved, so he gave. Exactly who you are. 
That's what he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand. And to us, that's why we want to become people of light. We want to be people who don't just quote John 3.16 and can point to it. We want to be people who live it. We want to be people who trust it. We want to rest in it. We want to let it define who we are. So what are people of light like? Once we have that light, once we accept it and we step into the light of Christ, and then that's who we are, what are we like? What are we supposed to be? How does that change us? People that are no longer in darkness, what do we do with that light when we really believe it and we become different? When we let it be our test and we let it be our discipline, it should change how we do everything. Everything. Me going in and out. Is that all right? Better? Okay. So here's what we can't do with it. Is we can't become people of light who stand in the light and then point the finger at those in darkness and condemnation. That's what we can't do. People of light don't do that. The reason is because we were once in darkness. So we can't become people who were in darkness who get saved by no action of our own that's given to us and stand in the light and then point back and go, how dare you be in darkness? What's wrong with you? It doesn't make any sense to receive that gift, to have that given to you, and then to turn and condemn those that are there. If anybody had the right to do that, it was Jesus, and he didn't do that. It, it, you know, it reminds me of, uh, of an older child. Think about this for a second. A couple has a baby. It's their first child. And they nurture it, and they give up sleep, and they give up money, and they give up their time, and they give up everything that they can to nurture and to love that child because love is sacrifice, and they're happy to do it because they love that child. And that child grows up maybe to be six or seven years old, maybe eight, maybe older, and then they have another child. And for the first child to look and go, that second baby doesn't deserve your love. I can't believe y'all are sacrificing sleep for this. You're giving him dinner? He didn't do anything to deserve that. Not in any way did he deserve this. For a first child to stand there as a recipient of all of that grace and all of that love and to be showered in that way, and then to turn and go, he doesn't deserve that. Do you realize how ridiculous it is? It's absolutely insane. We don't stand in the light of Christ that was unearned and point the finger and condemn. Because if condemn was what Jesus wanted to do, we're all in trouble. Instead, we are people of the light who point to the light, who draw people to the light. Only when you recognize that you did nothing to be in the light and you don't deserve the light can you really be in it. Because here's the thing, if you find yourself there and you go, well, I'm in the light, but these people aren't, and they don't deserve it, and I do, then you're not really in it. You've missed the point. You don't know the truth. You haven't had God shine the truth on everything about who we are. So we don't point. We don't condemn we can't live as people who change the words to this, for God so loved Christians that he gave his son for those who already believe, and he came to condemn those that are in the dark. We cannot live that way. We can't change the words to this. we got to remember that God loved, and so he gave. We can't switch that up. We've got to remember that we are now people of the light. So what do people of the light do? Well, let me tell you again about some of this language. This, for God so loved that he gave his only son. This is familiar language in a lot of ways to those who would have been Jews during this time. 
There's a couple of places that maybe they would recognize this. The first one that most of us go to is the idea of Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham was the one that God made the promise with. And then he said to him, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. And, and I want you to know we're going to go through that story sometime, but that's not the one I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about a different one. There's another place, and it's Exodus 4, 22 and 23. And this was the words that God gave to Moses to go immediately to Pharaoh and to say, and he said this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now this language of firstborn son is not just the idea of it being first. It's unique. It's I have a son of unique character. Individual. It's different than any other. And so what you had was God going, Israel, my people, the people that I've chosen, through no effort of their own, they are my son, and so I want you to let them go. But here's the part about this that is really interesting because it looks harsh, right? The idea that God would go, give me back my first son or I'm going to take your first son. But one of the things you need to remember is what he's talking about here is what's going to come in the Passover, in that final plague, right? Is the idea of go, give me my first son or I'm going to take your first son. But you need to know God offered his grace equally to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. They both had the same way of being saved. And because of that, one of the things that we can understand with this is that it wasn't just the Israelites God was interested in saving. He wanted to save the Egyptians. He wanted to save the whole world. It didn't change. God's always been that way. For God loved the world, so he gave. That's what he does. And what ended up happening was many Egyptians did believe, and some came with them, and as they left, they talked about there being this mixed group. Some of the Egyptians did believe in God. They became people of light. They became God's people because they did believe in this. And you need to know that is the same story that we have. God loves, so he gave. He loves the whole world, so he gave. And the idea that what he would start talking about is his own people being his son. And then he talks about Christ being his son. And he talks about what he gives. Let me show you one of the things that he gives. Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. And so he gave light to the world. John 1, it talks about, the, he said, he, I gave the, uh, myself in the flesh. The word became flesh and came, and he was the light. John 1 was the light. And then here's the next one, is Matthew 5, 4, 14 through 16. We're the light. You are the light of the world. You're a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The gift of the world that the Lord gave, don't get me wrong, it's Christ. He did what none of us can do. But the idea, too, that God's people are a gift to this world is something we need to understand. He's always felt that way. As a matter of fact, the covenant he originally makes with Abraham is to say, through you, I will bless the whole world. And he still says that to us. If you're people of light, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. That's why we're supposed to be different. That's why we can't be people who stand in the light as some sort of safe base and then point out at people who aren't in it. 
We have to realize the love that God has for the world, and especially those who don't belong to him. So he gave. And in this place where we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus, where we're the body of Christ, he gave us. He's given us to the world. Not because we save sins, we don't. But so that we can point to the light. We can be people of light. We can show others where the light is and invite them into it. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. About you being a gift from God. That he would say, you're my gift to the rest of the world. That you could go out and you could give and you could sacrifice. That you could be somebody who says, for I so loved the world that I give. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is why our calling to follow Christ is more than just coming here and sitting in church. It's about us being like Christ. It's about us sacrificing for those who don't know. That's the way people come to know. It's not from holding up a poster that says 316, and it's not from being able to quote different scriptures. Those are good things. But more than that, we need to be people of the light. We need to be people who love the world like our Savior did, and so we give. It's why we do everything. It's why we're doing a diaper drive, right? There are moms and dads out there have unexpected pregnancies, scared to death, afraid of what's going to happen, don't know what choice to make. They're in darkness. They're in confusion. They're in fear. So what we do is we have places like the Pregnancy Resource Center where we go shine the light. Tell them who they are. Tell them how they're loved. Tell them who they belong to. Let them see the light of Christ. Amen. We give. He loved, so he gave. Now we love, so we give. That's the point. We get to be part of the sacrifice now. We are part of God's sacrifice. That he would take us and say, you go. You go love in such a way that it costs you something. That's okay, we can do that. Because the guy that we worship and the guy that we follow and the guy that we're being transformed into, he did it so well. That's why when we take the bread and we take the cup, it's a great reminder to us of who we are. The idea that the bread is the bread of life, that it represents the body of Christ, and now we're the body of Christ, and it's broken for the world. Sacrifice. And it's broken and given out so that we can spread. We're the, we're the body, and we're broken. We're part of the sacrifice that gets to go out into this world and shine the light, show the light of Christ on people. And the reason we get to do that is because we know we're covered with the blood. We are the body, we're covered with the blood. It's a great reminder for us of who we are and what we've been called to. Let us be people of light in everything that we do. If you would, stand with me and I'll close out with prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to be people who are changed by your words and by your deeds. We know that you loved and so you gave. Let that be the thing that we center our whole life on. You loved, and so you gave. And because of that, we get to be called sons and daughters of yours, that we don't have to stumble and wander in darkness, but instead we have the light of Christ right on us. And the light shows exactly who we are, how much we're loved by you, and we thank you that you came out of love. And so, Lord, we ask now that we would go out into the world in the same way, that we would be the light, we would be the hands and feet of Jesus, 
that we would be people who love in such a way that they would ask us why and then we get to tell them about the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, let us be people of light in everything that we do. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.